0: Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback. proceed at this time.
1: Good morning all. Uh, may it please the court. My name is Alan Bowden. I represent the appellant uh, David Braun in this case. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice I would like to preserve four minutes of my time for rebuttal please. All right. This is an appeal from a final order from circuit court for Loudoun County striking a pleading of the appellant that was unsigned when it was originally filed but was properly cured in accordance with Virginia Code section 8.012711. The main issue for the court is whether the trial court erred in its interpretation and application of 8.012711. Now, the uniqueness in this case, I would like to first point out is the trial court's interpretation of this statute ignored the plain terms of the statute, resulting in a terrible miscarriage of justice for Mr. Braun, but this case is also very important as it presents a unique question of law in Virginia. Uh, as far as we could find, there are no reported cases in Virginia which address the application of 801 as it relates to an initial pleading filed without a proper signature by a Virginia barred attorney but was then cured pursuant to that very statute. Further, there doesn't appear to be any Virginia authority which supports the trial court's conclusion that the statute does not apply to to initial pleadings or that a litigant must seek leave of court in order to cure the signature defect. In fact, this case appears to be one of first impression in Virginia. Yes, sir. This is Justice
2: Mims. I'd like to establish one fact before you continue. And I'll probably ask the same question of your opposing counsel. Um, first of all, uh, a document that's filed without a signature or that's this, this left at the clerk's office without a signature it is not a properly filed pleading. Is that it is in, in essence is a nullity. Would you agree? That's with correct, Your Honor. Under the current law, absolutely. Okay. Counsel, okay. What is the date on which a signature first appeared on the document that is that is actually filed in
1: the clerk's office your honor the the date the, there is no date on his signature his testimony the only evidence of when he signed it was August the 17th however there so, are so
2: his so so his testimony the attorney whose name is is listed on the pleading his testimony yes, is that on August 17th my- ne- my signature appeared above my name on the
1: document that is actually on file in the clerk's office. that's correct your honor that 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 dis- doesn't dispense with the fact that three signed complaints were tendered to the clerk's office, which were signed by Tracy Meyer on behalf of Tony Cooch two business days after the initially filed complaint which was unsigned. And those facts are undisputed, Your Honor.
2: I I understand that. I simply wanted to to find out what the date is that the attorney's signature appears above that same attorney's name. And you said it's August 17th. So you may the only evidence
1: yes yes sir. The only evidence in in the case, Your Honor, is Mr. Cooch's sworn testimony, a Virginia bar member in good standing who said that he signed it on the 17th of August. Yes, sir. Now, I'll just pick up where I left off when uh, the, the first impression in Virginia. Uh, counsel, before you do that, this is
3: Justice Kelsey. If I may um, interrupt, what do you make of footnote 2 in the uh, trial judge's final order in which he says the earliest date on which the court could find based upon the evidence in the record the counsel's signature occurred was August 31st?
1: Yeah, the, the facts simply don't support that, Your Honor. The facts simply don't support that. The, the, the three summonses were generated by the clerk's office on August the 4th. How could they not have had signed complaints on August the 4th in which to generate? And further, uh, the, the three defendants, another uncontroverted fact, all three defendants were served with summonses, with signed complaints, that had been filed in the clerk's office on August 4th, the exact same day that Mr. Cooch was notified that his initial pleading um, lacked his signature.
3: Right. I'm with you on that, on the August 4 copies that were signed by um, by partners. But it seems as though the trial judge, and I'm asking, I'm not asserting because I have no idea, is not using the August 17 date but rather is using some date um, from August 31st forward.
1: Sure. So, so you Your Honor, what I believe with that, y- yes, sir. So a couple things. Number one, I, I don't know that we affirmatively stated this in our, our brief or our reply brief, but this order was submitted by opposing counsel. It was signed by Judge Fleming in its entirety. Okay, so this order was completely drafted. By a co- opposing counsel, that August 31 date, Your Honor, comes from a uh, response to a question in a deposition where Mr. Cooch was asked when he first sent the signed copy of the complaint to his lawyer. That's all that is. So in other words, the only paper trail evidence uh, uh, other than the, uh, the, the, complaint, the, the complaints that were filed on August 4th which is an incontroverted fact. But regarding the one uh, that was sent to the client, the first paper trail in our system was when he sent it by email to our client. That's the August 31st date. But that, 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 that belies the uncontroverted uh, facts, the only evidence in this case, that Mr. Cooch is sworn testimony that he went to the clerk's office to just review the file and was shocked to see that his complaint signed by his law partner was not already in the file, which it should have been. Um, So that's where that date comes from. Does that answer your question?
3: It does, thank you.
1: Very well. All right, I'll try to pick up where I left off. The the reason I state that that this, this case offers a case of first impression for Virginia It seems that the factual and legal underpinnings of this case are not resolved by Scheidt versus Hunter, nor Cohn versus Wilson, nor the Neri case. None of these cases addressed a pleading that wasn't signed initially, as is the case here. Uh, The undisputed facts in this case should leave no question in the court's mind that the trial court erred and its decision should be reversed. I think it's important to just briefly set out the chronology here for the court. July 31st, especially given the questions that I received, I think it's important that we all clearly understand the chronology. On July 31st, 2015, Mr. Cooch mistakenly filed an unsigned complaint. Two business days later, on August 4th, 2015, the clerk's office informed uh, Mr. Cooch of the omission of the signature. That same day, appellant's Counsel coordinated the immediate submission of multiple signed complaints by his then law partner, Tracy A. Meyer, on his behalf, which cured the defect. Also on that same day, the clerk's office took these complaints in and immediately prepared three summonses and attached those complaints to the summonses, called the law firm back and returned those to us for service on the defendants. 13 days later, on August 17th, out of an abundance of caution, Mr. Cooch went to the courthouse to review the court's file. The clerk reviewed the file, including a clerk's note that memorialized the telephone call on August the 4th. Surprised to see that the complaint signed by Tracy Meyer was not in the file. The clerk allowed Mr. Cooch to sign the complaint that was in the file, which did not have his signature. On August 27th, all three of the defendants were served by private process server, with a summons dated August 4, 2015, and with each assigned complaint, all of which prepared by the clerk's office. Three and a half years later, the trial court had a hearing on defendant's motion to strike plaintiff's complaint on the basis that appellant didn't properly remedy that initially unsigned complaint. Ten days later, Judge Fleming issued his April 29th order and opinion. Now, notwithstanding the stated incontrovertible facts as set forth in the record as, as, and as I'm telling you here today, the trial court struck Mr. Braun's complaint erroneously holding two things. One, that 8.01271 does not apply to an initial pleading, and thus the only way for appellant to have corrected his unsigned initial pleading was to file a new complaint and a new action. And second, to the extent the unsigned complaint couldn't have been corrected by an endorsement of counsel, Virginia Code section 8.01271 required leave of court to correct that signature defect. 8.012711 states nothing of the sort. It is very plain in its reading. And it says, I quote, every pleading written motion and other paper of a party represented by an attorney shall be signed by at least one attorney of record in his individual name. It further states that if a pleading written motion or other paper is not signed. It shall be stricken unless it is signed promptly after the omission is called to the attention of the pleader or move it. The plain language of the statute allows for unsigned pleading to be signed and thus cured upon notification of the defect. There's no now, language this is in this
2: Justice statute. Justice Powell, what is your best yes. argument that signing the pleading is not
1: an amendment? Uh, Justice Powell, the, my, my best argument is, is that the, the statute itself allows for, for this type of action to cure an unsigned pleading, and nothing in the document itself is actually being amended. I mean, if we take, if we take the, 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 the prior uh, stance that, the, that the, the complaint is a nullity, then it's actually a nullity. It has no effect until it's signed. So once it was signed, it, it, it gained life and then was placed in the court's um, breast. Well, you take, issue August-
2: with, you take issue with the trial court's position that it was a nullity. And if I agreed with you that it was not a nullity and disagree with you that a signature is an amendment, where does that leave you?
1: Well, I, I don't take issue with the trial court's issue that it was a nullity. I think under 8.012711, before the current amendment that the, the governor signed on March the 2nd, if we're operating under that and we're not giving full force and effect to the new amendment, which we will be able to do once it uh, becomes effective, then I think that it was a nullity and until it was signed, it, it actually meant nothing.
3: You have two minutes and 36 seconds left. You used it any way you'd
1: like. I'd like to reserve my time.
3: All right.
4: Would you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757 965 5025 Two one direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at seven five seven nine six five five zero two one.
2: Mr. Emmert,
5: thank you, Your Honor. Uh, I'm again. I'm Steve Emmert. In this case, I represent uh, the defendant in the case below and the appellee here. I'll begin by addressing uh, Mr. Justice Mims's question. I agree uh, with Mr. Bowden that a document without a signature is not a properly filed pleading. I think we all agree upon that. And the date of the signature on the document is the issue that uh, Mr. Brown addresses in assignment five and that the trial court addressed as Mr. Justice Kelsey indicated in footnote two. The trial court wasn't able to find an exact date and found that there was a window between August 17 and 31. He was taking into consideration likely the fact that Mr. Cooch, the lawyer who was deposed to get his recollection of this, was deposed three years after he went in at some point in August of that year and might not have been able to remember everything correctly. We've even cited some of his, uh, to my best rec- recollection, testimony in, in our brief. So. This is not an issue on which the trial court had defined, as Mr. Bowden indicates, that the signing occurred on August 17. So it was somewhere within that window, and I think we can be confident of that. Um, I've uh, evaluated the issues in this case to try to find the narrowest way to resolve this appeal, because I know that you're interested in doing that. I sense that that's probably assignment four. Uh, this was the narrowest ruling below because it was on an issue of fact, a question of whether the amendment was was a prompt. In this case, we know from the record that Mr. Brown's attorney received notice on August the 4th that the pleading wasn't signed. He declined to walk the one block from his office to the courthouse. He was in the office that day, August the 4th. He was in the office the next day, Wednesday the 5th, Thursday the 6th, also in the office. And he went on vacation on Friday the 7th. He was gone for 10 days. He came in back into the office and sometime between August 17 and 31, went, into, went over to the courthouse a block away to sign. The trial court made a factual finding that that wasn't prompt action, and this, the trial court was allowed to consider the context, including his nearness to the, uh, to the courthouse and his many opportunities before going on vacation to cure this problem. There is, as we've noted, a heavily deferential standard of review. It's, is there plain error in this? Because this is a factual finding the trial judge made. And I respectfully submit that if you affirm this finding that ends the appeal because even if they uh, prevail on the others they're never going to win on that one. Mr. Brown insists that adding a missing signature isn't an amendment a matter that Madam Justice Powell asked Mr. Brown about. We cited Black's Law Dictionary on this in our brief but this court too has described this process the adding of a missing signature as an amendment. You did so in Scheip versus Hunter in 2010. On page 485 of that decision you repeatedly call the addition of a signature an amendment. You even refer to this requirement as a holding in the earlier Cohn versus Wilson decision. I recognize that you regard holdings as binding, and this is one of them. Since it's an amendment, it requires leave of court, something that Brown has never sought and obviously has never received. I want to add a word about the three service copies that were allegedly tendered to the clerk on August the 4th. The trial court ruled on this issue twice including an order denying reconsideration that was entered 11 days after it entered final judgment. There is no assignment of error contending that the trial court got this decision wrong. The assignment of error questions whether the judge made the ruling at all, and as we've noted in our, in our brief, it's fairly obvious the court did so at least twice. There's plenty of argument on the question of whether the decision was wrong in Mr. Brown's briefs, but because he didn't assign error to the trial court's ruling, that issue is beyond our reach today. It's the law of this case. At this point, unless you have any questions, I'll turn it back over to Mr. Bowden, but this case should be affirmed.
3: Mr. Bowden, you have two minutes and 30 seconds.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. I, I want to talk a, a, just for a minute about some of the things that Mr. Emmert stated, the, the no exact date um, regarding the filing and, and whether or not we know for sure, I, it, it just seems odd to me that we can't all agree that when three complaints are filed in the court and three summonses are issued. I I, I know that Mr. Emmer put this into his brief and, and continues to call them service copies. There was no signed complaint in the clerk's office at the time. She went and filed these signed complaints to remedy that defect. So the, the case under Rule 3-2 should have been instituted on August the 4th, which it was, summonses were issued and the defendants were served. Um, With regard to, was it prompt and and Mr. Cooch declining to walk to the office? Again, this ignores the fact that he had this issue remedied the very same day that he was notified. And no, he was not in the office on that day. That's why he asked his law partner to take care of that. Uh, Counsel, this is Kelsey
3: Kelsey again, is again with a question about um, the three copies. Uh, Mr. Emmert's arguing that there's no assignment of error that directly says what you're now saying, which is forget what happened on the 17th, forget what might have happened on the August 31st date. The fact is there were three documents, the exact complaint signed on August the 4th, and his argument is, you didn't specifically assign error to that point. What's your response to that? Uh,
1: My response to that is, is the court failed to make any finding of fact. Um, If the court fails to make any finding of fact, I, I find it difficult to articulate where the court went wrong. That's why we initiated the motion for reconsideration. I would also point the court to, Um, Virginia Baptist Homes versus Botetourt County, where the court says that, you know, if you don't allege uh, in an assignment of error that there was no finding of fact, you don't preserve the error, indicating that we did indeed preserve the error. Judge Fleming, in his opinion and order, fails to even mention the, the three signed complaints that were filed, again, because that order was submitted by opposing counsel, and, you know, obviously they wanted to stay away from those facts, but th- those complaints were filed. We articulated again in the motion for reconsideration. In his response to that motion for reconsideration, he again gave no basis, no legal basis, and no finding of fact as to whether or not those three filings were valid. Mr.
3: Bowden, like your time close- has, has expired. Um, The court is going to take a recess. Um, Counsel will call in at 11 o'clock because we will go back to live stream uh, at 11.15. The court is now in recess.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.